Hi guys, JJ here. Welcome back to the show. Today I have with me Natalia Rachel. She is a trauma therapist, speaker and consultant and she speaks on the topic of trauma. Just recently in June of this year, she founded her own practice, Iluma Health, where she helps clients recover from trauma. Iluma Health's mission is to create a trauma-informed world through their work with individuals and corporations. I look forward to our conversation today on what trauma is, her approach towards her work and uh, her herself and Iruma Health's mission and also how we can heal ourselves from trauma. Natalia, thank you so much for taking time off your very busy schedule and joining me in this podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, maybe you want to give a quick introduction of yourself to the audience? Sure, my name is Natalia Rachel. I'm the founder of Iluma Health and my mission and our mission is to create a trauma-informed world and repair and revitalise the way we relate to each other. And actually what brought me to this work is my own journey of, of recovering from and healing from my own trauma and figuring out who I am and how to relate to people. Mm. Where do you come from? I'm from Australia. I grew and up how in long Sydney. have you been staying in Singapore? Nearly five years. I love mm. it here. Great, great, great. I was looking through your, um, of course, your profile and the work that Iluma Health does, and I get a bit overwhelmed by you know the technical, the technical part of um, what trauma is. In the simplest terms, you know, how would you describe your work and what trauma is? So let me answer what trauma is first, because they're two different questions. My definition of trauma is when a past experience of threat that is over is still living and breathing in us now. And it can affect us mentally, emotionally, it can affect us physically, and it can also affect us relationally. So trauma decontextualizes through the various layers of our being and creates a different way of experiencing in the world. So that's what trauma is. My work is focused on three main areas. The first is trauma recovery, trauma healing. So supporting people that might have gone through an experience of abuse or neglect and helping them reclaim themselves and, and heal and thrive in the world. The second area that I focus on is actually working with leaders on cultivating empathy, emotional integration, and learning how to develop really keen perception. Because I think when we're able to understand us and also understand what's going on with other people in the world around us, we can start to engage in a way that empowers beautiful change and transformation around us. And the third area that I focus on is working with corporations. Our mission when we work with corporations is to create safe environments and dynamics where it's actually okay to be human and we bring a trauma-informed approach to culture transformation which is quite different so we're all about understanding why am i why are they why are we and now what can we do to facilitate safe beautiful empathetic and compassionate interactions when we you know earlier you spoke about how trauma is like part of a incident that lives in us so typically, as a, as a layman to the term trauma, you know, what I typically would think is um, I go through something and I say that I'm traumatized by that incident, I'm traumatized by that incident. Um, in my mind today, I have like two or three incidents that I can, if you ask me like, what have I been traumatized by before? There are two or three incidents that I would probably, you know, float up in my mind and that would be my experience and my definition of trauma. What happens to like sort of our brain and our psyche you know when we go through something that traumatizes us and is it something that like sort of like leaves a scar in our mind in our brain how does it work trauma is a very 
complicated. I think it's important to understand it's not the past event itself. It's the imprint that it leaves in us and the changes that we we have, we adapt in order to survive. So if we don't have these kind of permanent changes that are happening in us, it's not trauma. It's something really bad that happened to us and that we heal from. So trauma is the, the unhealed part of us. And when we are experiencing trauma, what happens is that our nervous system start sensing threat, something really bad's happening. So the nervous system sends danger signals all through the body saying, danger, 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 you need to keep yourself safe. And then our survival mechanisms or instincts will try and do just that. When the trauma or the difficult threatening situation is over, our body should come out of the threat response. So we should return to a sense of feeling, oh, I'm, I'm safe inside me and I'm safe in the world at large. But in the case of trauma, that doesn't happen. So the threat signals continue and we experience what's called a miscalibration in the nervous system. So threat becomes our baseline and then it underpins our greater experience. And this is the cause for many mental health conditions. When we consider physical health, when there's a condition that's not resolving, it's often there's a piece that the nervous system is experiencing threat. And it also can come up in our relating dynamics. So if we've learned through our trauma that relationships can be harmful in any way, often it's like the nervous system is seeking that out again and again. And so healing is a really big complex non-linear piece because we really need to understand what are our underlying threat responses and what are the adaptations what how has this decontextualized within us and it's different for everybody so it's really a deep journey of of self-inquiry that takes a lot of working on perception and working on understanding me and me in relation to you and the world I don't know if this uh, this would be a good analogy, but I can imagine, like, for example, you know, if you go to the prehistoric prehistoric days, you know, when we are like hunters gatherers, like you go out hunting every day, right, for survival for food, and one day you are chased by, like, let's say, a herd of elephants, or you are chased by a lion, you know, and you come back feeling very traumatized by the incident, and tomorrow you feel like I don't dare to go out and do what I used to do very comfortably anymore. How has that? How has this um, sort of example, you know, how has that evolved into our today's society, whereby we no longer are doing our hunting, gathering, but it's more of like interpersonal relationship. How has trauma evolved, you know, from the past to now? Is there, is there, has there been evolution? This is a really good question. I love this question. Yes, there are a few main hallmarks of trauma. So the first is oppression which causes disempowerment. And the next really big one is suppression, which causes loss of self. So let's look at both of those. When it comes to oppression, either a person or a structure, a system is telling us, you don't have any power here. You don't have rights, you can't. And so when that happens, we're disempowered. We're not able to access our own impulses, a sense of agency and a sense of choice. Now, we can adapt Actually, our our adaptations are very, very nuanced, but on broad terms, we might adapt in one of two main ways. So the first way we may adapt when someone tells us, no, I'm taking away your rights, is actually to fight um, because we're not safe and we need to reclaim our right to expression, to freedom, to peace, all of these things. And so 
we'll fight, we'll find a way to try and conquer and win, and we might even try to manipulate our way out of a situation. And often there's aggression involved. And in my opinion, this is how war begins. So that's one way that we might adapt. Another way we might adapt is to actually shut down and freeze and hide. So the example that, that you shared just then is exactly that. We think, well, that's way too dangerous. I don't really have a chance of winning. So my only potential way to survive this is actually to bury myself and minimise myself and perhaps even disappear and hide until this sense of threat is over. And, and when this happens, there is this experience of, not really being able to step forward into the world, not being able to choose, not being able to create. And we might just feel really apathetic, like, oh, well, this is my lot. I'm just like this. This is how it is. And we're going to paralyse by, exactly. by, by the incident yeah. and, and, and the trauma. Correct. So we might be just apathetic or we may move into an experience of victimhood where we feel the world is just a very threatening, terrifying place and it's out to get us. So that's how oppression has manifested through humanity. The other thing that I really see manifesting through humanity is is suppression and the experience of, of loss of self. And this is something that I work with very, very closely. When we're experiencing threat and trauma, it's often not safe for us to express how we feel, what we think, our opinions, our desires. It's not safe to. Either our expression might incite more harm and aggression or it might actually cause us to be rejected or abandoned or cast out of a group. And so when this happens, again, there's one of two main survival instincts that we'll go to. The first is to choose belonging and community and connection above all. And in trauma speak, this is known as a fawn response. Mm -hmm. So even though the relationship or the dynamic we're in might be very disempowering and harmful, the thought of actually being alone and not in that is too much. So we will do anything that we can in order to adapt our expression so that we can maintain the connection with the group or structure or system. And when this happens, we lose our true authentic voice. We have to create a way of expressing in the world or in the dynamic that we think is safe, that's not going to make the other person or the system angry um, or that's not going to cause them to reject us. And w when we live like this, it, it's very hard to connect to our purpose and our authenticity. It's just not possible. The other response, which is less common, is to choose our freedom and our individuation above connection. And so when, when this happens, the person is going to disconnect from the dynamic. They're going to flee and they're going to leave. Um, and in, in some cases, this is really healthy because you don't want to be in a disempowering dynamic. But I guess as the effects percolate w within somebody like this, if it's not healed, if the trauma's not healed, they may actually find it really very hard to create and maintain connections or identify both people and systems or structures as inherently bad or evil, like they're out to get them. So a lot of people that get into conspiracy theory, that's this at play, living and breathing in them. So I hope that answers. Mm. You know, you mentioned about this, um, can I say like human tendency to choose community and connections over the fear of losing a certain identity or a certain connection. Mm. Is that a reason why people some people we see around us are often stuck in an abusive relationship 
and you know to the outsiders are like you know why are you doing this you know why don't you just leave him why don't you just get out of it but people are stuck in it that's absolutely the fundamental reason the thought of being outside of this sense of connection is too terrifying to bear so that's one piece another piece is Often people who are in abusive relationships as adults have been in abusive relationships as children. So their map for connection actually says connection is harmful and love is harmful. So that's all they know. And a big piece of healing is, I guess, realising that and then deciding to create a new map for what, what healthy relating is like. When we've grown up in trauma we don't know what healthy relationships are. We don't know what love is and we don't know how to engage in a way that, I guess, continues to invite that. There are some relationships that we can walk away from. However, there are some relationships that are for there to, that are there to stay. Uh, blood relationship, you know, our relationship with our parents, with our children. Um, what happens, you know, you also spoke about childhood trauma affecting adulthood. Um, what happens during childhood trauma and how much of it does it affect an adult, what they experience in childhood? I believe when left unprocessed, childhood trauma actually underpins our personality and who we are and how we relate in the world. And there are so many different kinds of trauma and, and different ways that it will exist within us. Um, but usually there is dysfunction in our relationships. So usually that past dynamic is either existing now or it's colouring the way we see others and it causes an inability to respond from a place of understanding this is me here and now and this is that person here and now. So what commonly happens is we transfer or we project our past experiences onto the new person and this is very common in romantic relationships. It's also very common in manager and employee dynamics as well. I see that a lot. Is there a story you can share with us? You know, maybe a, um, a case study that you have of a client that can share or a personal story that you can share about how this is like, you know, a story in real life? Well, I, I can't share any of my client stories because it's all very confidential, but a common scenario would be that someone has been physically abused as, as a child and usually with physical abuse, there's emotional abuse too. And as an adult, they'll walk right back into an abusive situation and they won't know why, they won't understand why and they'll have a really very difficult time leaving because there's a really big existential piece. When we're babies, we need connection. We need our parents in order to thrive in the world. We'll literally die if we do not have our parents there. So when this is projected into an adult relationship, there's that feeling of, actually, I wouldn't be okay. I could not exist if I left this harmful connection. So this pops up all the time. I've definitely experienced it myself, which is why I can work with it so well. But many of my clients have this experience, the sheer fear or terror of being alone is too much to bear and often there's a requirement to go back to that to that old experience of feeling terrified in the world and, and feel it and process it. And once that's felt, there's this incredible freeing up occurs and we're able to be not our traumatised child self, but we're able to be our adult self who actually can survive in the world. And once that piece has processed, I've seen time and time again People all of a sudden waking up 
and connecting to their impulse and connecting to their agency and having a chance to figure out who they really are. Because when there are these child traumatised parts of us, I guess, have been trapped in us, and we, t- we used the word, you used the word paralysed before, we're immobilised and these parts of ourselves don't get to grow up. So when we start to heal our trauma, it's like all of those frozen pieces of us get a chance to exist and, and catch up so we can be integrated. When this process doesn't happen, right, how does trauma then manifest itself into greater um, mental problems, like mental issues we talk about? Especially in this COVID era and pandemic era, right? We talk about mental health. How does it manifest from trauma that's untreated, unaddressed into mental conditions? Okay. Well, I guess it's good to clarify. I'm not a licensed mental health professional, so I cannot give advice from that perspective, but I can tell you what I see time and time again. And also I can share my experience. Um, I have survived through a lot of trauma when I was younger. And when I was... 18, I was very erratic from it because I was experiencing a sense of threat. There wasn't much information about trauma then. And so my mother took me to the doctor and they said, oh, you're depressed and and put me on medicine right away. And then I didn't react well to that. So they sent me to a psychiatrist who on the first session told me I had bipolar Mm -hmm. and doped me up on a triple cocktail. Um, So this happens all the time, when we're experiencing threat, we're gonna react to it, we're gonna have a reaction. And threat can be very complex, so it might cause us to be apathetic and depressed and down, it might cause us to feel anxiety and even panic or hysteria, or it might cause what's called a coactivation, which is both threat responses, either concurrently or flicking between states. And that can present symptoms that might be more common with borderline personality disorder um, or bipolar or even schizophrenia. So there's more and more research coming out that suggests that many of these mental health labels actually have origins in, in childhood trauma. And so there's a whole new, I guess, a world of different trauma therapies, trauma modalities that are coming out that are trying to help people not only find a sense of safety within themselves, but access all of those parts of themselves that either didn't get a chance to express or are having trouble finding resolution in their expression. So parts therapy is a really big piece of the puzzle when it comes to trauma recovery. All of those parts of ourselves that didn't feel safe, that didn't get a chance to tell their story and that didn't get the care that they needed, they need to be looked after. And that's where the healing is. I suspect that a lot of um, issues or a lot of unhappiness, sadness that we feel today can be traced back to a certain traumatic event or even depression, you know, it's because of like um, an unhealthy relationship, for example, that's the root cause of it. But I can sort of imagine it can trace back to certain roots in trauma as well. Um, What is, sometimes we just feel like something's not right with our body, nothing's going right. Um, One example probably would be like romantic relationships. You, some people, they realise that they have been in and out of multiple relationships that just doesn't work out. And they do not know why. They probably know that something's wrong somewhere, but so what's the process like to diagnose trauma, childhood trauma? What, what's, the, what's the process like? 
So usually when you're starting to explore origins of trauma, what any good therapist will do will be to talk to you and listen to your story because the answers always lie in the story. We want to understand what's happening now in your body, in your mind and in your relationships. Where Where is there possible trauma at play? Then we want to understand any milestones in your life, any turning points in your life. And we also want to understand your childhood experience and potential harmful or abusive dynamics. And a really good therapist is going to help you link all the dots to understand and answer the question, why am I like this? What's wrong with me? That's the that's the common question that's reverberating inside us when we have unprocessed trauma, like what's, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? And a really good therapist is going to help you answer that question and realise actually there was never anything wrong with you. You've been through really difficult things and it's not been processed and that's what's causing all of this dysfunction in your life. And certainly for my clients, there is a moment when they realise, oh, that's why I'm like this. There's nothing wrong with me. That a huge amount of shame starts to release. So shame is synonymous with trauma, the feeling that we're inherently wrong or bad or flawed or broken. And so when that shifts, usually the healing can begin. So that's the starting point. It's a journey though. Shall we move on to the work of, since we're on this topic, the work of Illuma Health? Um, and your work with your individuals, clients, and corporations. I want to start with a more kind of macro kind of question. Like, what do you feel about the current mental wellness landscape in Singapore? I think it's getting better. I think there's more and more awareness in this country that there are mental health issues at play and that it's important. I think we're behind other countries like Australia and the US um, would be two reference points. But I think I think we're starting to shift things. And um, it's really interesting through this COVID time, as soon as COVID started, I started getting calls to come and speak. Can you talk about mental health, Natalia? Can you talk about burnout? Can you explain the nervous system? All these things that big corporations would never have had going on in their organisations before. Before it would have mostly been about leadership right um, and self-development which I don't actually even know what that really means so it's felt like COVID has lifted up and brought to light the greater issue of mental health that's been around for a really long time so to me that's the silver lining of COVID that we're actually starting to talk about these really important things and we're starting to develop new strategies and new systems and new ways to support ourselves and each other so I think we're getting there. I think we have a long road to go, though. You mentioned about Australia and the US. What are some of the key differences in terms of culture or in terms of our approach towards mental wellness that you see is the biggest difference? Take, for example, Australia, your home country. Yeah, I'll talk more about Australia. I mean, I've been watching particularly New South Wales in, in the news recently, and they are putting so many resources towards mental health and, and grants and funds to small organisations that can help specific groups of people that might have more specific mental concerns. So, for example, there's been a grant awarded to mothers um, that either have been giving birth or having young children during this time. So it's been really beautiful to watch the millions of dollars um, that have gone to mental health there. And, and I think, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. What is the difference between, I think most people would 
by now would understand the difference between seeing like a psychologist and a clinical psychiatrist. What would be the difference between someone going to Illuma Health and going to a clinical psych- uh, psychologist, for example? So it's very different. Our practitioners all come from different backgrounds, but most of them are not psychologists. None of them are psychiatrists. So psychiatrists where you go to get the um, MDs, medication. Yeah. Um, for example, my background is actually as a hypnotherapist, so I'm not a licensed mental health professional. We have a couple of counsellors, we have a couple of people that actually come from movement and somatic backgrounds. And I think when you come to to Luma Health to do some trauma work, we're going to bring a somatic approach and we're going to bring a trauma-informed approach. And then the therapists are all humans that have lived through it and understand it in a different way. So it's quite a new frontier when it comes to trauma recovery. We're not mainstream medicine, we're not mainstream mental health, and we're very open and and vocal about that. And some people are not interested and they, they want to go to a psychiatrist and they want to go to a psychologist and that's wonderful. Often when people come to us, they've already been on quite a journey. So they might have been in the medical system for a long time. They might have been in the mental health system for a long time. They might have explored spirituality and healing, but something quite hasn't shifted. And what we've found over over time is that once we say, hey, there might be a possibility of trauma and we explore the story, something clicks um, and, a, and a different kind of healing can begin. What is a somatic approach? Can you break down the word for us, what it means and where the word came from? So somatic means of the body. It comes from the word soma, which is a Greek word, actually. Somatic therapy can mean many things. So it can be very broad. It can mean anything that's supporting the body. So it could be something from body work like massage, craniosacral therapy or lymphatic drainage all the way to movement practice like yoga and qigong. When we bring a psychotherapeutic approach, which is what we're offering at the clinic, actually we're pairing not only the body but the mind and we're looking to address the unspoken story of the body. When we experience trauma and actually as we live and breathe in general, so much of our experience is nonverbal. Our nervous system experiences first. So we've got all these neuroceptors that are picking up millions of bits of information all the time and they're called qualia. And the nervous system sends them up to the brain for integrated processing and their messages come back. And that's when we develop thoughts and feelings and when our body will respond as well. When we enter a state of trauma, everything gets disrupted because the nervous system is experiencing threat. And our body is really good at protecting us. So what happens is the left brain and the right brain start having a different conversation. They kind of disconnect. So the right brain, which is the feeling, the felt sort of sense and processes, hides a lot of the traumatic material because it's too much for us to deal with in that moment. And the left brain can then just continue going on and we can continue to live our life. So there's this miscommunication between the two hemispheres of the brain and it causes what's more widely known as a mind-body split and a big piece of somatic therapy that has this psychotherapeutic approach is to access those stories and experiences of the body that didn't get a chance to be processed and find completion or integration and allow them up for resolution and when that happens uh, the body and the mind can reconnect and the left and the right brain can start 
having a healthier conversation. They can be integrated and start working together rather than being having two isolated stories. So we often talk about when there's trauma, there's the story of the body and then there's the mental verbal narrative. They've often kind of disconnected. So part of healing is to bring them back together. And something that's really common is Many people who approach somatic therapy have been in talk therapy for years. They've talked and talked and talked, and I've done that too. It means like going to see a, psych- a psychologist yeah, and talking about it. Absolutely. Yeah. They've talked and they kind of understand, well, yeah, that would be why. I kind of get it, but I don't feel any different. I might still be having anxiety or strange weird pains or insomnia. So something's not integrated. I know it, but I don't feel, and it's the feeling piece that is missing. So when it comes to somatic therapy, We do talk and we do listen and we do understand, but we're also going to bring you to the experience of feeling and sensing. And it's through connecting to the body in this very nonverbal way that often things start to emerge. Um, And certainly that's my story. I had no idea I had trauma and I had so much trauma. And I talked for years and it wasn't until actually I was in a bodywork session where I started to feel really relaxed and present in my body that all of these memories started to come up. And actually at the time that wasn't a very safe or trauma-informed experience for me, uh, but it's what led to my healing and recovery. And developing the work that I do now, that concept is a really big piece of the puzzle. Can I give a personal example? And I would just want to you know, see if I'm on the right track with mm. what you're talking about. So I've seen a, psych- uh, I've seen a psych- psychologist before. I've talked to, to psychologists before about uh, some of the anxiety that I have and one of the things that came up was that because when I was young there were a few incidents where I my family received a phone call and it was bad news that's coming through the phone call and now that I'm an adult right, I sort of have this um, very bad relationship with the phone sometimes when the phone rings you know sometimes when the phone um, when the phone something comes through the phone my heart starts like beating very fast mm-hmm. so I sort of I, I, I know perhaps you know I have like a negative connotation that I associate with the phone and if I go to Illuma Health is something that I can reconcile is that what it is? Yeah we can definitely listen to that story so based on what you've said one of our therapists would listen to the greater context and they would try and understand what were the emotions that you were feeling back then what were the thoughts that you were having what were the physical sensations that you were having um, and, and what was the greater context of the situation? And then we would find a way to support you to go into a felt experience of that so it's safe to have the experience. So not going into your personal story on, on, on this show, but um, something would have happened that's not safe and, and you would have not been safe to have your reaction. So part of the healing process is to let you experience it and often it's very physical. So you can feel it in your body, it's racing heart. Often when we're feeling very worried, we might need to shake. That would be our normal response through the nervous system to discharge stress. Sometimes we might wanna run away and hide, but we don't, we, we immobilize and we stay there. Or sometimes we might wanna scream, or sometimes we might wanna cry, or sometimes we want, might wanna say, mummy, daddy, please cuddle me, and we don't do any of it. But we didn't get a chance to do it or we didn't do it at a point of time. Correct. And that suppression of that help that's needed then manifests over the years and accumulates into something that's greater 
in us. Correct. And what you experience is a trigger. So that's really common. We do a very good job at keeping our trauma at bay. So the personality that we construct keeps us safe from having to deal with it. But we're not meant to be suppressed and adapting and surviving forever. So at some point, triggers pop up. And it's different for everyone, but one of your triggers is a phone. So when the phone rings, you get a racy heart. For someone else, it might be when someone raises their voice. I have that. So when someone raises their voice, I feel very, very panicked because I've experienced abuse before. And there are different triggers for different people, and they can be triggers that I within human interaction or they can be sounds uh, that, and th- like a really common thing for someone that has PTSD that's gone through war mm. is if a car backfires it it's like a gunshot going off and and there'll be a, a trauma response so another piece of healing our trauma is to understand our triggers what's happening now what does it make me feel and think and what do I experience in my body and what is the link what is the root and until we illuminate all of those and I call these trauma threads we cannot heal it if we're just trying to work on the trigger in the present it usually doesn't heal. That's my experience. What you just talked about, is it part of uh, what you call a trauma-informed culture? What is a trauma-informed culture? To me, a trauma-informed culture is when we can understand ourselves and others through the lens of trauma. And I believe the world would be such a different place if we all adopted a a trauma-informed lens. So most people in this day and age have gone through some kind of trauma and it's left unprocessed and it is often dictating the way they express and engage and relate in the world and so when someone for example in a workplace is being toxic which is a word i really don't like we tend to just label them as toxic and either speak badly about them or kick them out which actually is often mirroring the trauma behind their toxicity in the first place. So if we had a trauma-informed lens on this, if we were dealing with the toxic person, we would actually want to ask why. Why is this person behaving in a way that is disrespectful and that harms others? And if we take time to ask why and to explore the story, then we can actually engage in a way that allows them to have an experience of safety and inclusion and belonging which is probably the root of what's going on in the first place. So when we exist in a trauma-informed culture, we're considering this and we are stopping punishing and condemning and rejecting people. We're just looking to understand, well, why are you? Now, how can I harness the power of this dynamic to create a change and sometimes it's not necessarily the change we're looking for because of course we have to have boundaries and we have to have expectations and we can't just allow someone to behave in disrespectful ways but we can start to rehabilitate rather than just punish or condemn which is kind of the go-to mode in today's world sadly. So it's like empathy? Yes, empathy is a huge piece. Some of the the key pillars of everything we share on on a corporate and community level are empathy, vulnerability, authenticity and accountability. All of those things are required to create a trauma-informed culture. The the kind of catch-22 is is if we're not feeling safe inside ourselves, inside our body, mind and spirit, we cannot access true empathy. We can't. So empathy is impossible in the face of threat. So in order to 
cultivate relationships, dynamics, cultures where empathy is leading the way, we have to have done the work first. So we have to know what our triggers are and how to come out of them. And we have to know what our dysfunctional relating patterns are and how to, I guess, challenge ourselves not to engage from them. So it's really deep work. I can only imagine how nice the world would be if a bit more of us would look at certain people and certain incidents through a, what you call a trauma lens, you know, just understanding where they've came from. But that's a lot of work to be done. So what do you see as your own personal mission and also the mission of Illuma Health, especially Illuma Health because it's so recently, you know, just founded. Um, I understand you're just celebrated like three months. Yes. Yesterday. <laughs> We're babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what do you consider your mission? So our company mission is to create a trauma-informed world and revitalize and repair the way we relate to each other. My, my personal mission for myself is to find a way to do that while maintaining a sense of peace, balance and harmony for myself. And that's, that's I think, one of their foundations of empathy too, to try and acknowledge someone or something over here, but to also be able to acknowledge and respond to our own needs and desires. So for me, that's my constant, I guess, piece of processing is how do I create the world I want to see in and put my energy there, but how do I also make sure that I stay balanced and happy and connected? Absolutely, mm. because if we, I think a lot of us have this particularly, um, founders or workaholics, we tend to orient out. So we'll put all our energy to something else. So it might be to a business or a cause or a mission or to a relationship. But when we do this, we leave ourselves, we abandon ourselves. And this is the trauma at play too. Um, so for me, a big piece of feeling is to continue to look after myself. And so for me, self-care is a way of life and, and finding a way to maintain that while continuing to be very mission-driven and create an impact. That's my current focus. So it's a bit like, you know, while we are trying, while you're trying to change the world, you are also aware that you don't want to let the world change yourself, your identity too Co much. Correct. Yeah. I think um, we can only truly lead and create change from a place of embodiment. Um, so basically it's about walking your talk. Um, you mentioned about self-care. What are some self-care tips or practices that you do yourself that you think can be useful to the audience? I do so much. So I really try to live and breathe self-care. I think that this should be the new paradigm of living that we should all be aspiring to. A couple of examples are when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is connect to gratefulness for my life. And then I allow myself five to ten minutes simply to breathe before I get up and start my day. So that's the first thing. Um, so what in the bed, you, once you wake up, you do it? Yep, I stay in my bed um, and I just breathe and, and connect to how grateful I am. Something else I also do is I map my day ahead because I find that really helps my nervous system to orient to the day. So I think about what the day ahead has and that allows me to, I guess, start from a place of mindful presence so I can continue through my day. Every day I do some form of exercise. So usually after I send my kids off to school, I'll exercise and it might range from boxing to weights to swimming to Qigong. So I'm very, very connected to the, the art of Qigong. Um, and before I go to bed every single day, something else I do is I'll have a shower or a bath and I just imagine 
the water washing away the stress of the day. I'm often listening to people's very difficult stories all day long mm. and talking about heavy, heavy topics like trauma. So I make sure, I guess, to look after my energy and, and cleanse my energy. And they're just a few things that I do every day and they're not work. They're just part of the way I exist. The other biggest thing that I do and what I'm constantly teaching people to do, particularly leaders, um, is to work within my capacity. So we all have a certain capacity to cope and we can all take on so much and that depends on so many factors depending on our level of resilience, our mental health, physical health and also the amount of support and resource we have in our life. And I think one of the biggest problems we face in today's world is that we're constantly overextending, we're going past what actually feels safe and okay and that is actually the cause of burnout. The hustle uh, culture. Exactly. So another big learning for me which I'm still working on is to keep checking, well, where's my line? Where's my limit? And can I make sure I stay within it rather than overextend and again it's a trauma response to overextend to push to fight to create to conquer um, so that's something else i'm always checking where's my limit what do i need to drop um, and again because we live in a hustle culture it's not necessarily accepted to say actually i can't today actually i need to take a bit of time off or actually i need a break to go and do some meditation or sit outside under a tree um, so again, this is something I want everyone to learn to do, but I need to learn to do it first. To audience listening, and they have sort of resonated with what you have said so far, and they are wondering if they need help, what are some red flags that would suggest that they should seek help? If you have physical symptoms, mental, emotional symptoms, or a lot of problems in your relationships, that kind of don't resolve, those would be signs that maybe something deeper is at play. I mean, we all go through stressful times and we all have little blips and hiccups and highs and lows, but if something is constant and repeated as a pattern and more mainstream support isn't helping you to resolve it, there could be, there could be trauma at play. And the other thing is, if you know that you have some past trauma and you know it's disrupting your life, um, then it's worth to look at. The thing that is very, very common is that it comes out relationally and it, it often looks like either disconnecting, not being able to engage in a relationship, not being able to feel connected, or it might come out through volatility, through being, you know, through having emotional outbursts or breakdowns, either in romantic relationships, friendships, or the workplace as well. Is this especially relevant in romantic relationship? Where we take our partners as punching bags, you know. Like, when we're at work, we sort of understand that there's a contract at play, right? You know, you, you are employed. But when we go back to our personal relationship, and that's when, you know, we sort of express and vent out that frustration towards our partner, towards our children, or even towards our parents. How do you view such relationships? The reason we take it out on our family and the people close to us is because it's safe. It's less likely that they're going to hurt us or leave us, abandon us. So they're probably going to accept it. Yeah, they're gonna, mm. which is a little bit sad, but it's true. I mean, these are attachment relationships and they mirror our formative attachment relationships. And so number one is we vent with the people that we have the strongest bonds to. It's just like um, a little child will scream with its mom and might like actually 
try and bash up its mum a little bit, but then you but take when it. They go you, to school, they're, they're like, perfect, yeah. right? I mean, that's because yeah. mummy is the safe person yeah. and sometimes mm. daddy is the safe person too. Um, so that's one piece. Another piece is it's really common that in our romantic relationships we're replaying our trauma. So our unconscious self or our child self is really looking to recreate that relationship and have it end a different way. And so we often get triggered in our romantic relationships. I don't know who said it, but somebody said, if you don't heal your trauma, your romantic relationships are going to force you to do it. That's certainly my experience in the past. We, we bring it all in, and the moment we feel attached to someone, all our attachment trauma comes out. Um, and for people that are really trauma-informed and aware of, of trauma recovery and working on it, one of the newer philosophies is to try and enter a conscious relationship where you identify your trauma and you identify the other person's trauma and you try not to take it out on each other and harness the power of relationship for healing. Uh, so that's kind of a new paradigm of, of what it is to relate. We've all got funky relationship dynamics um, and usually it's those that either cause a relationship to end or cause a really harmful or dissatisfying relationship. Coming to the last part of this interview, which is um, part three, will be like healing from trauma. Mm. Uh, I, I saw some of the videos that you put online, some of the therapy work that you guys do in your clinic. And there's this particular video that I saw whereby uh, through, the, through this process of touching the client at certain um, parts of their body, there's this um, release of energy that's happening through be it through vocally or be it through like you know a body reaction what is that about <laughs> it might look a bit strange <laughs> i realize for someone who doesn't know what's going yeah. on so we've spoken about how in the case of trauma there are all these unexpressed experiences so there are emotions that haven't expressed there might be words that haven't expressed and there's also been a holding in the body so when we experience threat we freeze and we do what's known as bracing so the body contracts and all these different muscle groups contract and that's part of that immobilizing fear i'm gonna hide and pretend i'm not here until the danger passes so there's that we also might want to do an action and not be able to do an action. So if someone's threatening us, we might have a desire to punch them, but we don't. Or if someone is physically harming us, we might want to kick them or scratch them, but we don't because we're immobilized. And so part of the healing process from a body perspective is allowing the body to tell its story. So we actually don't work with reenactment, re which some other types of therapy do, but we are creating a safe space for the body to go through its process. So in order to help the body feel safe to get there, we work with gentle trauma-informed holding. And it derives from training that I've done in craniosacral therapy and other, other forms of safe touch. But the concept is literally to just use one human's safe present and touch to support another human to feel safe. And this goes back to early attachment. So when we're babies and we come out of the womb, we need touch in order to survive. So ideally, when we're babies, the first touches we would go onto our mother's 
body and there's a full skin touch going on and there's research that shows that children who are cuddled more their nervous systems develop and thrive better than those who don't so when we're trying to heal touch can be harnessed as a really powerful way to do that so when we work with safe touch and just being present in a very non-verbal way in a somatic way what often happens is it's safe enough for the body to start processing so it might be very common for a client to twitch which is actually the nervous system discharging stress and threat from the nervous system some clients actually experience what's known as full body unwinding or local unwinding so it can feel like the head and neck want to unwind or the hands want to move or the feet want to splay and again if you can imagine your whole life you've been braced it's like the body is finally letting go and telling its story and again it's really non-linear some clients who have gone through an experience of physical abuse actually get a sense to push so we support them sometimes to push through the hands or push through the feet and again there's this huge release through the nervous system and often there's a really big freeing up of muscles something that i've noticed over time is different types of abuse and different emotions that are suppressed show up as specific patterns in the body so for example if someone has gone through sexual abuse there's going to be a lot of bracing all around the hips and often through the legs if there's been physical abuse ongoing as a child actually the entire fascial back line will be contracted and that was true for me and I'm still working on releasing it um, something else is if we've been terrified and afraid to speak for a really long time we end up contracting our diaphragm um, and so when we contract our diaphragm we're not allowing as much breath into our body. And so when the diaphragm starts to release and engage, there's this sense of increased breath coming through the body. And it can feel like all of a sudden bursting out of a black box or coming up from living underwater. So there is a very, very physical somatic component to healing from trauma, um, which is often missed when we're just working with the mind and talk therapy. So it's pretty powerful stuff. Mm. Um. Oh, what's my question? I'm so absorbed in what you're saying. <laughs> but, um, you know, this act of touching someone when the, the, the patient or the client is going through this process, right? What's happening? Is it happening in the subconscious level of the mind? Well, we're connecting to the right brain, to the felt sense. So remember we talked about when we go through trauma, the right brain hides the traumatic content. So when we connect to the body through nonverbal communication, through touch, often what arises, if it's safe enough, um, and if the connection is safe enough, and if the touch is safe enough, is that nonverbal expression. And it might arise first through sensations in the body, it might arise through the body wanting to move, or a memory might come. And our therapists are trained in a trauma-informed approach, so they know how to spot what's going on and invite it into expression they also know how to stay connected because we don't want a client going back to the memory and reliving it that's regression and it would be re-traumatizing so one of my biggest focuses as now a teacher of this is to make sure it's safe um, and and that people aren't going to experience harm during during the session but the point is i guess we're tapping into what's not conscious and we're bringing it up for conscious expression. That's how we heal. How many students do you have now? So 
Last year I trained two therapists under my modality and this year I trained another six um, and, and we're all now working together and we have a couple of other therapists at the clinic who haven't trained under me but also work with the trauma-informed approach to care. How can we um, build up our resilience in dealing with trauma? Resilience is such a buzzword these days. To me, resilience actually comes through being able to sit with the distress and discomfort and know we're okay. So when we're supporting someone through their process of, of dealing with trauma and recovering, actually we're helping them learn through all the various methods that we have. Actually, it's safe to feel this. And even though you're experiencing this now, you're okay with it. It's not killing you or disempowering you or eating you alive. So that's often the fear when we've got unprocessed trauma that I, poss I couldn't possibly go there. I would dissolve or die or disappear in the process. And when we learn, hey, actually I am okay, even though I've experienced this or I am experiencing this, I'm okay, that's when we cultivate resilience. So resilience is born through finding a way to gently and gracefully go through the difficult experience. And I believe now this global trauma that we're facing through COVID, those of us that move through this with, with grace and support will be incredibly resilient humans afterwards. Mm. You know, talking about touch and the power of touch, is there a way we can utilize the power of touch in our daily lives, in our relationship. So, you know, there's this, um, the, the love, like the love languages. Mm. And one of the thing is uh, physical touch. If let's say my partner's love language is physical touch on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, how can I utilize and harness on the power of touch in my daily relationships? Well, I guess this is a, about a dynamic and an agreement between two people. But if you know that touch is your partner's love language, offering it to her as much as is appropriate for both of you would be really good. And if two people are safe in connection and if there's consent and permission and invitation, that there's no, there's no rules or boundaries. A lot of the problems when it comes to trauma is that there was no consent and there was no communication and there were no boundaries. So a huge piece when we want to work with conscious or intentional touch is work is doing a lot of boundary work. So for example, we commonly have clients that have been sexually abused and then in their relationships now, touch isn't welcome. And a big part of repairing that is actually working with touch and so boundaries for unpleasant experiences. Absolutely. Mind, this right? is a very, very, very common experience and either the partner who's been through the abuse um, never wants to be touched or seldom wants to be touched or they welcome the touch but they split and they fragment. So actually part of them is really not wanting it or sometimes even having the bad memories but they're just letting it happen, uh, which is very re-traumatising. So this is very, very common in modern relationships where one person has experienced physical or sexual abuse. So we can start the repairing process. Usually we'll start it in the therapy room, uh, but I'll always invite, once there is enough safety and awareness, uh, a process between the couple on repatterning what safe touch is. And it takes time, but it can be incredibly transformational and it can build intimacy. When we've got unprocessed trauma, Intimacy is pretty much impossible. We're trying to simulate it. We're trying to fake it. Um, and one of the beautiful things that comes from 
being vulnerable enough to explore our trauma is that we can open our hearts and actually develop deep human intimacy, which is something we deeply crave, and it's often what was lacking in the first place. We all want safe connection. And they're stopping us from experiencing the goodness of the world and our relationships and all. I want to talk a little bit about sexual abuse. Um, you know, recently in like Hollywood, there's like the Me Too movement. Sexual abuse has always been s- sort of like a dark secret that people keep to themselves if it's not reported to like at the at the legal level. Um, a lot of people are not comfortable talking about their experience with sexual assault and sexual abuse, even to the people that's closest to them. It's often a very dark secret that's kept in them in their heart. Um, what it's advice to someone who is listening to this, they have been a victim of sexual abuse, sexual assault, what can they do? The most important thing is to share your story with a safe person. So identify who that might be, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's a therapist. As with all trauma, one of the things that we talked about earlier is the suppression. So when we suppress something, we're alone with it. And in order to heal, we need to express it and we need to be in safe relationships. So safe relationship is a resource for healing. So the first thing to do is is to tell the story. And, And once that happens, we're no longer alone with it and it's no longer locked inside us. And so a healing process can start to begin. Often with sexual abuse, there's so many different emotions that have been suppressed and there are so many holding patterns in the body. So it's quite a process and it needs to be worked with very gently um, and slowly. The reason no one talks about it and no one wants to feel it is because it's actually horrible. It's one of the most awful human violations in the world. Um, And so to be able to heal it, we've got to do it in very small increments. It's almost like um, dipping your finger or your toe into water to check the temperature. So we can only dip into a little bit of the story um, and see, is is that safe? Okay, yeah, it is. Now let me take a break and next time let me walk a little deeper. So usually when we're processing this kind of abuse, we're working with a very layered approach because that's what allows the process to unfold safely. Mm. Okay. Do you have any tips to help um, the audience deal with negative emotions? It's something that we experience on a daily basis, right? I think no emotions are negative. That's my tip. We need to have our emotions. No emotions are negative. No emotions are negative. And I think that reframe is really required. If we're sad, we need to let ourselves be sad. If we are angry, we need to be angry. Mm -hmm. Anger is probably the biggest one that comes up. We, We tend to have a really warped relationship with our anger. We, we think that it's bad and wrong, but actually all our emotions are telling us something. So and we shouldn't frame them as negative. No emotions are negative. It's about how we allow them to express and also how we ensure they express healthily without doing harm either to ourselves or others. So for example, in the case of anger, usually we have a, a funny relationship with anger if either we've experienced aggression or we've been told it's wrong or we've witnessed that anger is aggressive. That's unhealthy anger. Healthy anger tells us a boundary has been breached and that something's not okay for us. And when we can connect to anger healthily, it allows us to set a boundary. No, that's not okay for me. Get away from me. Don't hurt me. That's healthy anger. It's part of our 
defense mechanism, right? Yeah. In a way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we need it. All our emotions are these beautiful messages telling us something. When we integrate it and when we understand them and when we can allow them to express healthily, that's what allows us actually to be self-actualized and to have healthy relationships. Um, either we don't listen to them and we pack them away or we don't have control of them. So often if we have unprocessed trauma, we've kept all these emotions inside us for our whole life. And so something will come along and trigger a sense of one of those emotions. And when an, a suppressed emotion is triggered, it often explodes out and we don't have control over it. So we might yell at someone or we might be rude or we might have a breakdown and that reinforces the idea that emotions are bad or wrong because we've disrespected somebody or we've hurt ourselves in the process and so a big piece of the healing is to process and make space for all these often very compressed suppressed and messy emotions and I found personally through that journey and also witnessed thousands of people once they've gone in and processed all those suppressed emotions the triggers are no longer there. Um, and therefore, when somebody comes along and breaches a boundary, instead of exploding on someone or feeling this deep internal rage, they can actually respond healthily and say, nope, that doesn't work for me. And and that's healing. Earlier you mentioned about your own healing and this energy that's not released um, totally and you're still working on releasing. Do we ever fully recover from trauma? This is the most common question I get asked all the time. Or is it like a scar that's permanent in our mind, in our brain, you know? There's no healed state. So when we're trying to get to some elusive state of nirvana, we're going to fall short every time. Our past experiences have happened to us and they've created the person who we are. They don't have to define us forever. We can change, but they're still there. So to me, it's not about getting rid of the trauma, but it's about deactivating the triggers and learning to care for those parts of ourselves that were traumatized, that were harmed. And actually, it's that learning to care for ourselves and to exist in an integrated way where all parts are welcome. To me, that's healing. So I think we need to come away from the idea that we need to be these perfect healed beings because nobody's like that so the state is like you sort of you accept it you try and reconcile it and you move on from there yeah i mean i think once you've done a lot of emotional processing and processing the body there's this huge freeing up so the past stories might be there but you're no longer disempowered by them and you're no longer abandoning these old parts of yourself you're able to realize if there is a trigger, hey, this is my trauma at play and now I need to do X, Y, Z to self-care. Or, oh, there's this other piece of me that's feeling like I need some support. I'm going to give it to myself. And so then we become empowered to care for all of our parts rather than shutting down or rather than allowing our dysfunction to leak out into our relationships in the world. So to me, that's the goal. So is that one of the biggest misconceptions that people have? What are some of the other misconceptions people have about trauma or when people come and see you to go through a treatment process? A lot of people come in and say, oh, I don't have any trauma, but all of these things are happening and I cannot figure it out. And actually, when I was a kid, I was beaten every Sunday with a stick. Actually, yes, that's trauma. Um, so so the, the thought that I don't have trauma when really I do, that's a really big one. The other thing that comes up a lot is that 
you know, love and harm are not always separate. So we could have parents that loved us and harmed us. And when this happens, which is actually a very common experience, usually we go to only one extreme. Trauma causes us to be polarised. So if we've felt great love from our parents, but they've also hit us or yelled at us or shamed at us, we might say, no, that never happened because we can't acknowledge that love and harm can go together. Or the other thing can be true where there is an experience of love and care, but there is a lot of trauma, but we only can see the trauma and we can't see the goodness as well. Um, So one of the things I often talk about is just because a parent hurt you doesn't mean they don't love you. Mm. Um, And this can cause quite a freeing up for a lot of people and allow them to start accepting, okay, well, there was some trauma and and maybe I need to process it and maybe my parents did the best they could, um, but they still hurt me. I think um, when it comes to processing childhood trauma where there's been an abusive parent, it's almost like existentially sometimes we can't handle to do it. Um, we would feel too guilty um, to say our parent hurt us. And that's actually pretty common in the, in the Asian landscape, I found. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's, it happens in a lot of the, the Confucius kind of society whereby you have a certain standard or you, 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 the standard is that you can't say certain negative things about your parents even though certain negative things have indeed happened. Um, okay, I think um, that's a lot of the questions that I want to asked today actually I have one last curious question just um, out of my own curiosity uh, I'm a, I consider myself like a practicing Buddhist so you know in Buddhism there's this um, concept of uh, reincarnations and past life is there any part of our consciousness and of our just being our energy level that is whereby you can't exactly trace where it came from with your clients you know there's trauma but you can't really trace it and potentially it can come from your other existence in like your other lifetimes. Just a curious question off my mind. I think that depends on the framework of your belief. So there are many people who do believe in past life and actually I've studied past life regression. I don't practice it, but I, I deeply understand the concepts. And so if that is a framework that a client or or you or anyone believes in, then it can be considered that something that is manifesting in this life, the root isn't in childhood, it's in in a past life. So there are many people that do past life regression um, to try and process the root to create transformation now. My specialty is working with, with childhood trauma when the root is in this life, but I would say nothing is impossible. I would also say we need to meet each other where we are so if, if your belief is that that is true, then that is true. When I studied um, with my teacher, whose name is Andy Tomlinson um, of Regression Academy and his, his colleague Wisam, um, they, they shared, it. you know, people ask, is it real? Are past lives real? And, and the answer that we're trained to give is, actually, it doesn't matter. It's what's real for the client or for the individual, and that's the framework for processing. Um, it's, it's the same when we talk about trauma trauma in a current life. 
a lot of times one of the things that happens with trauma is that we're told our reality doesn't exist and our truth is not accepted. So a huge part of healing is allowing each individual to have their truth. And to uh, be who they want to be. Right? Yeah, and mm. to process what's true and real for them, which will change in every moment. Two last questions. One would be for people who are listening to this and are interested to become a student of yours, to learn more about this process. Um, how can they get in touch with you? Okay. So actually our online training is out in a couple of weeks. So it's out at the end of September. So if you're wanting to learn the modality TRS to integrate into your training, you can actually go to illumahealth.org and you can hop on there and you can download the online training. If you would like to train with me personally, if you're in Singapore, we'll be hosting another training. We're not sure if it's going to be in Singapore or somewhere gorgeous like Bali or Thailand. We'll have to see what happens with the restrictions. That will be in early 2022. And I do hope to get over to US later in the year to do a training then. But if you stay connected at alumahealth.org or follow me on Instagram or LinkedIn, I'll definitely be updating with training dates as they come. But that come. means you will be bringing your students to the US to go through the training over there? No, I'll probably, I hope, I hope to go and train people over there. Uh, so probably anybody in Singapore would join a live training in Singapore or nearby in Bali, Thailand, wherever we find a beautiful space. Uh, but I do hope to go and take this work international in, in the US later next year. Let's see. Okay. Okay, the last question was actually about um, how people can get in touch with you. I think you are very active on LinkedIn. You have been very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I will put down the links below in the show notes on how they can get in touch with you. Um, if not, Iluma Health, yeah, I think uh, they, sh- they can get in touch with you. How should they get in touch with you? Should they get in touch with you directly or through Iluma Health? However you like. I'm, I'm definitely very active on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram too. And then my team at Aluma Health are also really happy to support. So whatever you like. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, just thank you so much for having me. I think these conversations are so important. And we're at a time in the world where there's trauma everywhere. And we're being asked to step up and heal it for ourselves and collectively. So I just appreciate opportunity to share okay i'm actually the most the the thing that surprised me the most about what you said was how people how people how some people may think that they don't have trauma i would think that everybody has some sort of trauma you know my 10 months old um nephew so a couple of months ago he fell from the bed and now he's you know when you carry him he holds on to your collar like he's clinging on for dear life you know and last time you would sort of like, you know, when you play with a baby, you swing them around. Now when you do that to him, he cries Aww. so loudly. And I can immediately like sort of like link that with that traumatic experience, you know, as a 10-month-old baby falling off the bed and you sort of, you, bec- you become afraid of heights, you become afraid of that feeling of being suspended in the air. This is all part of trauma that we experience in our daily lives. It absolutely is, you know. One of the things about childhood trauma is if something really bad happens like that and there is somebody there to witness it and care for the child through it and allow the child to have this experience and tell its story, it's less likely to become trauma later on. And I believe very strongly that this generation, our generation, that are doing all this work to understand about trauma and healing and self-care we're going to be a completely different kind of parents to what our parents were and therefore our children are going to grow up 
with a lot less trauma. And I believe that they're the ones that are going to go on and, and really change the world long after we're gone. Great. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, I look forward to seeing a lot more of your content on LinkedIn, on Instagram. I think it's great. Uh, a lot of people are going to be reconciled. I, I think the word for me is reconcile. Reconcile what they have in their mind. And if they um, ever feel like they need help, um, you know, they should just call you up or just go to Illumina Health. Thank you so much, Natalia. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much.